Chapter 11 of The U-Boat Hunters by James B. Connolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter 11 Flotilla Humor at Sea. We were a group of American destroyers convoying twenty homebound British steamers. There was one ship, a P&O liner, a great specimen of camouflaging. She was the only ship in the convoy that was camouflaged, and she rode in stately style two lengths out in front of the others, all of which made her a prominent object. Our officers felt like telling her to dress back, but she had a British Commodore aboard, and for an American two- or three-striper to try to advise a British Commodore, well, it isn't done. All day long she rode out in front of the column, and all day long our fellows kept saying things about her. Isn't she the chesty one? Look at the big squab with all that war paint on. How does she expect any U-boat to overlook her? That big loafer, she'd better watch out, or she'll be getting hers before the day's gone. U-boats were thick around there. One of them must have come up, looked the convoy over, and said, Well, there's nothing to this but the big one. And, bing, let her have it for it was not yet quite dark when those who were looking at her saw a column like steam go into the air, a black column like coal follow it, and after that a column of water boiling white. One of our destroyers hopped to twenty-five knots, dumped over a three-hundred-pound ash-can, and got Mr. U-Boat. At least the British Admiralty later gave her one hundred percent on the circumstantial evidence. Two other destroyers, the 396th and the 384th, we will call them, went at once to the job of taking off passengers from the sinking ship. That was at five minutes to six, just before dark. It had interrupted dinner on our ship, but by and by we went back to the wardroom to finish eating. It is always good business to eat. No knowing when a man will be needing a good meal to be standing by him inside. And we were still eating when the messenger came in with the radio. He passed it to the skipper, who read it to himself, whistled, and then read aloud, Torpedoed, Clan Lindsay. The Clan Lindsay was another of our convoy, and she had been within 1,000 yards of our ship when we last came about to zigzag back across the front of our column. We looked at one another, and one said, Well, you got to hand it to Fritz for being on the job every minute. And another, Yes, but it looks like a big night tonight two in an hour, and eighteen more ships and eight destroyers to pick from yet. If he starts off like that, what do you suppose he'll be batting by morning? The wardroom on our ship opens onto the ship's galley, and from the ship's galley another door opens onto the deck. Through the open galley door just then came a muffled explosion. A great whoof! We all thought just one thing. They've got us, too. And we all sort of half curled up and would not have been a bit surprised if the next instant we found ourselves sailing through the deck overhead. The feeling lasted for perhaps three seconds, and then our skipper, happening to look up, saw that the colored mess-boy, George, was grinning widely. "'What the devil you laughing at?' barked out our skipper. George took his eyes off the galley door, but his grin remained. Said George, "'Cap'n, I see the flame. The galley stove just done bust.' The galley stove on our ship was an oil burner. It had backfired, and so the loud woof. 
Later it came out that the Clan Lindsay wasn't torpedoed at all, but one of our destroyers dropped a depth charge so close to her to get a U-boat that she thought she was. The camouflaged big liner sank, but not until the two of our destroyers standing by had taken off every one of the 503 passengers, one taking the people off the deck, the other picking up those in the small boats. One destroyer, the 396th, say, took off 307 of these passengers. Her skipper passed the word by radio to the 384th, which had gathered in 196 passengers, including the Commodore. The 384th got the message, only she got it seven instead of 307 people rescued. Seven survivors, said the 384th skipper. I wonder why she radioed that. He meditated over the puzzle and by and by solved it to his satisfaction. Of course, what she wants is for us to take off the seven and add them to our own. He took measures to meet the emergency and then followed this little incident. Aboard the 396th, they were busy trying to find space for the 307 passengers when a lookout heard a putt, putt, putt coming over the water. The officer of the deck listened. Everybody on the bridge listened. Putt, 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 it came. The officer of the deck reported to the skipper. The skipper wondered who it could be, when just then a radio message arrived. I'm sending a boat, 384th. Sending a boat? What for? He meditated over that puzzle, and then he solved it, as he thought. Sure, that British Commodore she picked up is coming to see how the survivors aboard here are getting on. That's it. He turned to the watch officer. You know how these Britishers are for regulations. Even in the midst of a mess like this, we'll have to kowtow to his rank, or he'll probably be reporting us. So rouse out six side boys, line them up, rig up the port ladder, have the bugler stand by for tara rums and all that stuff. They did that, shoving their crowded survivors out of the way to make room for the ceremony. The putt, putt, putt comes nearer and nearer. Next, from out of the blackness of the ocean, they make out a little motor dory. Balanced out on the gunwale of the little dory, when it comes nearer, they see an American blue jacket smoking a cigarette. No one else was in the dory. The dory ran alongside. It was about a 14-foot dory, no smaller one in the flotilla. The skipper of the 396th looked down at him. What you want? The blue jacket removed the cigarette from his lips. I'm from the 384th, sir. Yes, yes, but what do you want? I've come, sir, he waved a cigarette stub airily, to take off the survivors. The captain thought I might be able to make one load of them. When the big P&O liner reported itself torpedoed that evening, a destroyer, not one of ours, picked up the message 100 miles or so away, and at once radioed, Coming to your assistance. Give position, course, and speed. That was proper and well-intentioned, but as the 384th and the 396th were already standing by, a radio was sent back, Everything all right. No help needed. Thank you. That did not seem to satisfy the inquirer. Would like to help. Give position, speed, and course. Everybody being busy, nobody bothered to answer that. By and by came another radio. This is the destroyer blank. Give position, speed, and course. He was so evidently one of those Johnnies who are always volunteering to do things not needful to be done that nobody paid any further attention to him. 
but he kept right on sending radios. By and by, for perhaps the seventh time, came, This is the destroyer blank. Please give position, speed and course of torpedoed ship. At which someone, nobody seemed to know who, but possibly some undistinguished enlisted radio man whose ears were becoming wearied, sparked out into the night, Position of torpedoed ship? Between two destroyers. Her speed? About four feet an hour. Her course? Toward the bottom of the Atlantic. Nobody ever found who sent that message. Nobody inquired too closely. But all hands thanked him. The flotilla heard no more from the bothersome destroyer. The business of hunting U-boats is a grim one. The officers and men engaged in it do not like to dwell on the hard side of it. They do like to repeat stories of the humorous side of it. One of our destroyer commanders over there was a personality that the others like to hang stories on to. He is a quick-thinking, quick-acting man named, well, say, Lanahan. He was one day on the bridge of his ship when the lookout shouted, Periscope! Charge her! yelled out Lanahan. Away they went, hooked up for the periscope, which everybody could now see, about two hundred yards ahead. He's a nervy one. See her stay up, said the officer of the deck, who was standing beside the wheel and had glasses on the periscope. And then, hurriedly, I don't like the looks of her, Captain. It looks like a phony periscope to me, as if there was a mine under it. To hell with her. Ram her anyway, snapped Lanahan. The deck officer had not once taken the glasses off the periscope. Suddenly, he let drop his glasses, grabbed the wheel, and pulled it hard toward him. Lanahan had stepped to the wing of the bridge, and was leaning far out to get a glimpse of the U-boat. When he saw beneath him, as the ship scraped by, was not a U-boat, but a great white mine. He watched it slide safely past the bridge, past his quarter, past his stern. Then, turning around, he said gravely to his deck officer, "'You're right.' It was a mine. There was another young officer, Chisholm call him, who played poker occasionally. He commanded a fliver, which is the service name for the smaller class of destroyers, the 750-ton ones. In our Navy, there are plenty of young officers who will tell you that they never built destroyers which keep the sea better than that same little fliver class. Young Captain Chisholm of the 323rd was one. One morning, having convoyed a fleet of merchant ships safely up the channel, the 323rd was one of a group of destroyers making the best of their way to their base port. Officers and men who have been hunting U-boats for a week or so do not like to linger along the road home. So it was every young captain giving his ship all the steam she could stand and let her belt. It was breaking white water all around when they started. It grew rougher. Chisholm, in the 323rd, was going along at 20 knots when a poker-playing chum came along in his big 1,000-ton destroyer. Her nose hauled up on the quarter of the 323rd, up to her beam, up to her bridge. As he passed the 323rd, and he passed quite close to let all hands view the passing, the poker-playing friend leaned out and megaphoned across, "'What you making, Chiz?' "'20 knots,' hailed back Chisholm. I am seeing your twenty knots and raising you five, returned the other, and passed on. The boiler riveted nerve of him, gasped Chiz. But let him wait. The sea grew yet rougher. The 323rd was bouncing pretty lively, but hanging on to her twenty knots. And at twenty you'll let her hang if she rolls her crow's nest under, 
said Chisholm to his watch officer, and I'll bet yer we won't be acting rudder to this bunch going into port. It was at ten in the morning that the big one had passed them. It was four in the afternoon, and the 323rd was still going along at twenty knots, when from out of the drizzle ahead her bridge made out the stern and funnels of a destroyer. It was Chiz's poker-playing chum, and his ship was making heavy weather of it. The able little 323rd came up to her stern, breasted her waist, her bridge, and as he passed her, and he came quite close to let all hands view the passing, young Captain Chisholm leaned out from his bridge and roared through a long megaphone, I call ya. He beat the big one fifty minutes into the naval base. There are two channels leading into the naval base port. Call them west and east. This same Chisholm was one day headed for port in the usual hurry, and was already well into the west channel when a signal was whipped out from the signal hill. It was for his ship, and it read, West Channel mined last night by U-boats. Proceed to sea and come in by East Channel. Chiz did not proceed to sea. All the harbor men who were watching saw him come straight on through the gap in the barrage and safely on to his mooring. Also, all the harbor knew that next morning he had to report to the Admiralty and explain. The story of his explanation was not told by himself but an officer friend, a great admirer, call him Mac, had gone with him to the Admiralty. Here, the next day, Mac told the story in the smoke-room of the King's Hotel. Well, Chiz went, and, you know his courtly style, he has his cape over his shoulders, and he salams and says, Good morning, sir. The old man looks up and says, like ice, You got my signal yesterday afternoon? I did, sir. Then why did you not turn back and come in by the other channel? Sir, says Chiz, may I be allowed a few words? Very few. What have you to say? Sir, says Chiz, I have been trained to believe that the one word a naval officer should not know is fear. In our navy, sir, we reverence the tradition of your own Admiral Nelson who, at the siege of Copenhagen, put his glass to his blind eye and said, I see no signal to withdraw, and continued the fighting to a victory. Have you a blind eye, too? My sight is good, thanking you, sir, for inquiring, but in my own navy we also have the tradition of Admiral Farragut, who at Mobile Bay said, Damn the torpedoes, go on, and his fleet went on to victory. And there was Admiral Dewey, who said, Damn the mines, at Manila, and went on to victory. "'What are you coming at?' roars the old man. "'Did you get my signal?' "'I did, sir, and my first instinct, the instinct of all our naval officers, is to obey all orders of our superiors, sir. But I was well into that channel when I got the signal, sir, and, as I have said, sir, my first instinct was to obey orders. But also I stop and reflect for I have also been trained to believe that hasty judgments work many evils, sir, and I consider and find myself saying to my deck officer, This ship, Mac, is three hundred feet long, and under her stern there are two big propellers. If ever we turn this three hundred foot ship in this channel with those two propellers churning and there's any loose German mines around, there won't be a blamed one of em she'll miss. But if I keep her straight on, there's a chance. So hell's a fire, I says to Mac. There's only one thing for us to do now, and that is to keep straight on. And I kept straight on, sir, and I beg leave to report it now, sir. We made our mooring safely. 
"'And that's all there was to that,' concluded Mac. There was a long silence in the smoke-room when Mac had done, and then a voice asked, "'If Chiz had gone to sea and come in by the other channel, it was almost dark at the time, he would have been too late to make the barrage, wouldn't he?' "'He sure would,' said Mac. "'Which would mean that he would be kept turning his wheels over outside the net all night?' "'He sure would.' As it was, he got in in plenty of time for that little game upstairs last night. He was in a little game, admitted Mac. Another silence, and then another voice. Well, poker or no poker, Chiz's dope on that damned the torpedo stuff isn't the worst in the world. End of chapter 11 Recording by William Tomko